Welcome to the Golden Age of Cardboard Podcast, where we remember a time when stacks of cards were held together with rubber bands and Mickey Mantles were put in bike spokes. We hope you will enjoy and reminisce as you come along with us as we tell stories about the baseball cards from the Golden Age of Baseball. We will examine the state of the vintage baseball card market and talk to some of the greatest collectors in the hobby. You won't be hearing us talk about any chrome or shiny cards here. Now, to take you on this retrospective journey, here's your host, direct from the shallow end of the gene pool, my son, Mike Moynihan. Yo and hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast. I'm your host, Mike Moynihan, baseball collector on YouTube. Just a guy, just a dude that's been doing this hobby for a little bit. And today is going to be an episode where I just kind of express some thoughts, maybe even give some bold predictions of what I think is coming up for the hobby over the next little bit. I don't know that I have a time frame that I'm thinking about or whatever, but I'll maybe each point that I want to make, I'll have something to discuss, but in terms of timing and all of this stuff, but I'm telling you guys <laughs> kind of digging this, taking a break from the hobby and, and I'm not completely like I'm buying stuff. I'm just buying stuff for, you know, a 60 tops baseball set. I'm buying stuff for, you know, just here and there, private deals that I'm doing. I'm not buying a whole lot on eBay and buying comic books and stuff like that. So it's not that I'm not spending money, but this kind of pause, this reflective period that I'm taking on YouTube and everything, just kind of like going, okay, let me just sit back a little bit. You know, uh, I think about people that really want to see content from me and I appreciate those people all three of you out there that probably feel that way, but I just have wanted to take a little bit of a break. I mean, I've done good grief, 900 plus videos on YouTube between my old baseball collector channel and bench clear media. And so I am just burnouts, maybe not the right word. I just see so much greed in the hobby and investing and this and that. And that's just not what the hobby's about for me. And so I'm just like, yeah, I'll, I'll wait this out and chill out a little bit. Um, but I am enjoying watching and being an observer of things. I'm kind of lurking in the, in the shadows a little bit of the hobby and watching things. Uh, and it, just some observations that I'm going to make and some things I want to talk about that I think are really important to the future of our hobby. I know that, you know, this is a vintage card podcast and I'm not going to be talking about a vintage player or vintage cards or anything, but in the reality is all the things I'm going to talk about affect the vintage market just as much as they affect the modern market or whatever. This is hobby stuff in general. And so if you're a vintage collector, you should care about these things. These are, these are things that matter. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is probably, um, I don't know. For me, one of my favorite things every year is the national. I'm going to talk a little bit about the national. Hold on. I have to cough. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, the national. Let's talk about that. 
Love it. Great experience. Great opportunity to see friends. Great opportunity to buy cards, to see things you've never seen before. All of those things that we all know about what makes the Nationals so great. 2020, understandably, was a year where there was no national. Initially delayed to December, which was not exactly a genius move. And then ultimately canceled. 2021, we go into the year thinking, oh, everything will be fine by summer, late summer 2021. We should be just fine. Au contraire, mon frere. Uh, I don't know that it is. And the national has come out and said, basically, we're, we're not moving it. It's not going to move to another location. And we are at the whim and mercy of the Illinois Department of Public Health. So I went to the Illinois Department of Public Health website and find out that Illinois is currently in what they call stage three or whatever, uh, phase three of their COVID recovery plan. And it's a metric-based plan, meaning certain metrics have to be met in order to move on to the next phase. And each of those in, encompasses some type of reopening, some percentage reopening for different events, whether it's restaurants and bars or small gatherings or large conventions like the National. And you can actually go on their website and see, you know, what you can just Google Illinois Department of Public Health and see what they're doing and what their criteria are and where they are currently on those metrics. And some of the metrics look good in terms of percentage of people vaccinated that are over 65, total percent of the population that's vaccinated and all this. What's interesting about that is that doesn't, that's only for people that live in Illinois. If you think about a large convention, we're going to have 50 to 100,000 people coming in from all over the country. <laughs> How many of them, you know, it's like, what does it matter? You know, we got to have this percentage of Illinois residents. Well, again, all these people coming in are not Illinois residents. So what if only 5% of those are back? I mean, I don't know what they're going to be, but the point is, I don't know. It's, it's very fascinating to see how each state is handling their reopening procedure. And Illinois is, from what I can tell, one of the strictest in terms of how they're doing this. And so we have to get through these other phases. You have to get to phase five, which again, we're on phase three, there's phase four, and then there's what's called a bridge phase and then phase five. And we have to get to phase five for conventions to basically have unlimited capacity, even in the bridge phase, which is right before phase five, it's, it's limited to only a thousand people in a, at a convention type setting. So that's not going to do it for the national. Meaning I don't know, my bold prediction for the national is there's not going to be a national this year. And I hate that, by the way. I'm not exactly happy about it because I just don't think Illinois is going to move fast enough. They've already canceled a lot of other events, including the Chicago Sports Spectacular, which was supposed to happen in June, has already been canceled. We're only talking a month later, month and a half later that the national is supposed to occur. So then the national comes out and says, we're looking at possible dates in October. And could you be at phase five by October? Yeah, I think so. Um, but what kind of, what pisses me off about it, and I don't understand, is I've, and I've had an interview with the 
director of marketing for the national and they say all the right things and it, it sounds good in terms of yeah we're trying to protect everybody and all that i mean imagine if the hobby didn't have a national for two years in a row in the two greatest craziest most popular years the 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 hobby has ever had and you don't have a national sports card convention yikes right and again i haven't even said what really angers me about it and just irks me so bad is the national taking the stance of we're not going to move it so tell me why it's easier to move it within chicago from july why is that any easier to move it from july late july early august to October versus moving it to say Dallas, Fort Worth to Texas, where you could have it the same dates, fully open, no masks, no nothing. Right. If you wanted to do that, you could do it because it's just as hard. Let's say for me, I'm coming, I'm flying in. It's just as hard for me to change my flight or they can move it wherever Florida. I don't care the moon, wherever moving it to another location where they have more freedoms that seems to me just as easy a choice as moving it to October because you can just, all right, we're all going to here now, right? Yeah, there's a lot of logistical issues, but there's just as, again, there's just as many logistical issues, I think, for trying to find a time in October or November or some other time later in the year to keep it in Chicago. I still have to move my plane ticket. I still have to change my hotel reservations. All of those things that I would have to do if it was in another location in another state, I would still have to do those too. So to me, those logistics are don't seem that difficult to try to have it during the summer when you're going to have max attendance. Once you get into the fall, you've got people that have to deal with kids and they've got school for their kids and whatnot, everything. It The summer is ideal in terms of timing for the national because most people can take time off. They're taking vacations anyway. Their kids are out of school. There's just a lot more possibility for attendance, I think, in the summer. So do it in the summer, do it in another place. But they're not going to listen to me. But, I, but so my bold prediction for the national is there will be no national because I think October comes and the reality is, uh, I don't think things will be well enough in Illinois to allow for phase five, and then they're just going to cancel it, which again, would I think the worst thing that can happen for the hobby is the national to be canceled two years in a row. In the meantime, uh, May 1st and 2nd, there's a, a nice size show here in Fort Worth, which is great. Uh, it's the same people that run the Dallas card show are now doing uh, one in over in the other side of the Metroplex here, which is awesome. I'm going to be going to that. Then on May, uh, it's the weekend of May 23rd ish. Uh, I need to look at a calendar to get the 20, 20th through the 23rd, I think is the next Dallas card show. That's going to be 500 tables ish. They've got some signers. Uh, Doc Gooden's going to be there signing Earl Campbell. So it's getting and growing and getting bigger and bigger. And there's so many people talking about the Dallas card show. In fact, I know a lot of my friends that are flying here for that. Like, Hey, we don't even know if we're going to have a national, but we know the Dallas show is going on. It's a big, big show. Let's just go there to, to itch our show scratch, if you get my point. And there's just a lot of people doing that. A lot of YouTubers, a lot of uh, dealers and 
know, all the major dealers are there. There's not the same corporate presence as you have at the national. I mean, tops won't be there and Panini and et cetera. Although Panini should be there literally down the street from Dallas. So it's, it wouldn't be tough for them to have a corporate booth set up at the Dallas card show. So anyway, there's just, there's a lot of alternatives. And I, and I think the national is so just narrow minded on, we got to be in Chicago Chicago or bus, and I just think that's a mis- I think that's a fallacy of thinking. I think it's narrow, very narrow-minded on their part. But again, what do I know? But that's a huge thing for the hobby, right? The national. The second thing I want to talk about is uh, PSA. If you've been in the hobby for more than a day, then you know how fast the sports card market moves. There are now more options than ever to buy, sell, and research your cards. One of the most frustrating hurdles in the hobby is the fees when selling your cards. You know, those other popular marketplaces, the ones with their average seller transaction fee of 10%, the ones that don't have the seller's interest in mind. Wait, what? Who would do that? Well, hold on to your horses. No, not those horses. Welcome to the Card Flip, a place where we want to provide a simple alternative to buying and selling cards. No clutter, just you, graded cards, sealed wax, and the easiest of transactions. So what do you say? Are you in? Great. Welcome to the Card Flip, the seller's marketplace. I haven't voiced my opinion on them shutting down their services and only allowing Super Express, etc. All those things that everybody knows about if you're in the hobby. You know they're not accepting cards anymore right now for submission on bulk orders or anything, really. And I had an interview yesterday, actually, with Sports Collectors Digest. Um, talking about as from a collector's perspective, how I feel about PSA's decision. And I, I simply put, I think it was the only thing they could do. You can argue all you want on alternatives that they did the literally the only thing I think that makes sense for them long-term, but there are some significantly inherent problems with the decision that they made. Again, I think it was the right decision, Nat Turner, and even Nat Turner starting to do some interviews uh, with some people. So it'll be interesting to see his rhetoric around this over the next few months because they have said we're stopping submissions until July 1st. Bold prediction number two, not a chance in hell that they reopen for submissions by July 1st. In fact, I'll make an argument and I'll make the bold prediction that they will not start accepting regular submissions again till sometime in 2022, because I think it's going to take them that long to get caught up enough to a point where they feel comfortable reopening the floodgates. And that's not a metaphor. That's literally a tsunami of cardboard will flow from all over the United States and the world towards Southern California to the PSA offices once they decide to reopen because everybody right now is just waiting. Well, Mike, aren't a lot of people sending cards to, you know, SGC and BGS and what about HGA and CGS and all these new companies popping up out of nowhere to help, you know, deal with the grading card demand that's out there, grading of cards demand. And I'll argue it's a sliver. It's literally a sliver of what is out there. These companies are not taking large market shares away from PSA. 
Uh, and the problem is, as we saw with SGC, is they're just going to get overwhelmed with a tsunami of cardboard as well, and they'll be in the same boat as PSA. And they've all raised their prices. Everybody's, you know, raising prices to, you know, deflect people sending cards and really to stop it. And it doesn't matter. It does not matter. People are, I like to say the saying, you can't fix stupid and people just sending cards in blindly, ah, 50 bucks, fine. What, you know, just paying whatever I think is a long-term gigantic mistake by people out there as a, again, <laughs> hobby veteran, so to speak. I just look at this and I look back. Experience is a wonderful teacher and you have enough experience. You go, yeah, I've seen that before. Seen popularity of the hobby before. I've seen not grading per se, but just this. I haven't, it's like this flood of excitement, which means, and, and to get the excitement, to get the grades or to get the money that everybody's talking about and the greed and all this, you got to get the cards graded. And so again, I think that some of these new companies will receive more submissions, no doubt. Because again, if I bought a card just to flip, I've got to get it graded somewhere and fast. So I'm going to choose the alternative. If you're a guy like me, those of you guys out there that are co just collector mindsets and you're like, I just want a slab in my collection. I don't care if I get it today. I don't care if I get it a year from now or five years from now or a decade from now. Ultimately, over time, I want to add whatever cards, I, the cards that I like, cards that you like, you're going to want to add what you want to add to your collection. And believe it or not, most collectors are pretty OCD. That collector mindset has some tinge of OCD-ness to it, obsessive compulsiveness, so that I really want all my slabs to look the same. And because of that, I'm a PSA guy. That's that's the bed that I decided to lie in long ago. And I've enjoyed, it's a very comfortable bed. I like it. And I'm going to keep doing that. And so guess what? I'm going to be patient. I'm going to wait until the PSA uh, reopens. And again, it's not just them reopening because once they do, once they do, here it all comes. The tsunami of cardboard starts again. Do you think they're, they're not going to have this same problem? Now, will Nat Turner and uh, his group of geniuses over at PSA figure out a way to handle all of it? Maybe. And hopefully they do. Uh, whether it's a combination of hiring more people, integrating more technology into the process, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of ways to become more efficient and to increase productivity. They have a window of time now. I think that window is longer than most people, certainly that they're publicly saying July 1st. I think, again, looking at probably, I would guess, a year from now until sometime in first quarter maybe of 2022 that they will finally reopen. Okay, we've got it figured out. We we can take cards again, which I know probably just irritates the heck out of you. And again, if I'm crazy and you're watching this on YouTube, tell me I'm crazy down below. I, I'd love to hear your argument for or against any of these points that I'm making. But that's bold prediction number two about the hobby is PSA will not be caught up 
by July 1st and therefore will not reopen for submissions. So the third thing I want to talk about is pricing and crazy prices in the hobby. This is again, that one of those experience things that has led me to make my third bold prediction. And that that bold prediction is that card prices. So, okay, hold on before I make the bold prediction. I know that that was total teaser. I get it, but let's think about this. There's two ways to think about pricing. There's kind of the buy it now pricing and there's the auction pricing. Two very different things, very different dynamics going on. To me, the most democratic, uh, capitalistic way to know what a piece of cardboard is worth is to put it on a 10 day, seven or 10 day auction on eBay, let the dice roll and see where it lands. Wherever it ends up, that's the value of that card in that moment. Unfortunately, as we've seen prices rise, people are putting exorbitant buy it nows on these different cards. And what they tend to do is put the price a little bit higher than the previous auction close. Whatever the last auction was, they, they ratcheted it up or they look at sold listings and, okay, this card sold for $1,200. I'm going to sell, I'm going to put mine out for 1400 you know, not, not giant gaps, not huge things, but just incremental increases because of course, everything just has to go up forever. It never stops. Oh, it does it really does. But what you see is as you see auction, what I've seen lately being the observer sitting back and watching and observing is that auction prices of things are coming down. However, nobody's adjusting their buy it nows. And think about it this way. If you're a seller and you see a card sell for, you bought it for 20 bucks and it's selling for 200 and you saw an auction, you're like, man, I'm going to put my, man, if it sells at 225, I'll be thrilled to get it. Sure. Well, the next one, even though one sold at 200 might sell at 150. Nobody's going back and going, yeah, maybe 225 is a little much. I'm not saying this doesn't happen ever, but it's just not as common. Or certainly I don't see adjustments being made on the buy it now side. And it harkens me back to when I was a kid going to card shows. And you would see stuff in cases uh, that had been there seemingly since the dawn of time. The cases are yellowed and the, the sticker, you know, the price tag on it, uh, you know, it was made from ink back in the Victorian era. And it just cracks me up because you see these cards and car. It, this happens at shops, especially too, really, right? You go in there and the card's been priced the same for 20 years or something. Nobody, they've never adjusted it. They've never changed it. Why? Because that's what they thought at some point. That's what it was worth. Maybe back in the junk wackets era or some other period of popularity within the hobby. And that, is very difficult. That's a hard uh, wall to break through to people to say, look, I know, I know three weeks ago, this card was worth that. It's not today. So will you do this? And it's again, this isn't an exclusive, like everybody's like this in the hobby, but again, experience has taught me that a lot of people are, 
And so as I'm going to these shows over, you know, the one at the beginning of May in Fort Worth and the one at the end of May in Dallas, I'm going to be very interested to see how dealers are pricing their cards. Are they pricing them based off the high point, whenever that might have been for that particular card? Or are they basing it on whatever the kind of last auction was, whatever the current price is? And I'm afraid that, ba again, based on experience, that most dealers are going to be like, no, this card sold for, you know, $1,000. Now it's selling for $700, let us say, just as an example. Surely it's still worth $1,000. Well, it's not. It's like every, it's like anything. These are collectibles. They, the prices move. They don't only go up. They do, in fact, go down. Crazy as that might sound, especially to new people in the hobby, they're like, what, what? You mean it's not a meteoric rise in perpetuity forever? No. Sorry to say it's not. And so there's this idea that we just get stuck. These people, these sellers just get stuck because they want that. They want the peak price all the time. They think they deserve the peak price. And there's one person that's going to get to sell at the peak price. Think of the Jordan rookie right? The PSA 10, the peak price was 750. Well, now everybody thinks their Jordan PSA 10 should be worth at least 750 or more. And the last ones are selling for three to 400,000, if I remember right. That's significantly lower than 750. And so you can imagine the guy that had this PSA 10 after seeing the peak sale and sending it into an auction house or whatever to get sold and it comes back at half or slightly more than half of what it was before. Wait, wait a second. Now, luckily at an auction house, you don't have any recourse, but you can't go, no, I, I wanted 750. Well, of course you did. Who wouldn't? <laughs> we all want the peak price if we could get it, except you don't always. And what's funny is as a, as a buyer, I want the lowest price. Like if, if there's a range of prices that a card has sold at, especially on the vintage side, you know, I always look at the vintage Man, yours isn't the only one out there. When I'm talking to a dealer, like there's 10 more I can go get. You can choose. I'm giving you real money for cardboard. Do you want it or not? You know, they have a price. I give them what I want to pay. Most of the times it's, we come to some corner sort of deal somewhere in the middle or whatever, but sometimes they're just unwilling to budge. And the smart collector just walks away and moves on. The greedy collector or the flipper or whatever, they still might buy it because they're not looking to keep it long term. I want these cards in my collection personally for a long time. So I want to pay as little as I can because that's money that I can use for the next card. That's money that I can continue to invest in the hobby and add more things. So there's this constant tug of war between sellers and buyers, as we all know, and it's been going on since the dawn of time, but there are dynamics at play here in terms of pricing that I think is going to negatively affect how we view things in terms of pricing, especially from a seller side. You're going to be massively disappointed as prices start going down, um, which I think they will slowly but surely. But I think vintage 
the the bold prediction is that vintage prices are going to stay where they are, especially on the Hall of Fame type players, the iconic kind of players. Vintage prices on that have reset to a new level. I, I firmly believe that we are now in a new level of where these prices are going to stay long, long, long term. Because you could really argue, and I've heard videos on this and people talking about it, you could really argue that prices have been not correct for a long time on the vintage market. You can't tell me that, you know, XYZ Mickey Mantle is worth less than a Ronald Acuna rookie where there's 50,000 of these and only a few hundred or a few thousand of these. I, I've never understood that, um, how someone could look at that logically and that makes any sense to them whatsoever. You, I mean, I, I can't, you can't go, well, Acuna was better than Mantle. Well, of course not. That's not true. Can you go, you know, uh, Acuna's modern and so people can watch him and that gets people excited that much, you know, I'm just, and again, the Acuna Mantle thing, just an example, there's plenty of those where you look at a vintage player with Hall of Fame career, iconic, you know, the Ruths, the Mays, the Aarons, the Mantles, I could just rattle off name after name of players that should all be worth more than anybody playing today, save maybe Mike Trout. Other than that, none of them should be worth, their, their modern card where you can get plenty of them and get high grades should be worth more than vintage players. I, it just makes zero sense to me and it always has made no sense to me. But we've seen that gap close over the last year and a half and and vintage prices, especially over the last few months, have all started to go up pretty, pretty dramatically to a new level of what I consider to be this reset kind of area, which is good for the hobby. It's kind of normalizing like, okay, I get it. Mantle should be worth more than Acuna or whoever. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Sadly, though, we are in a supply and demand thing. This is only cardboard. It has zero intrinsic value whatsoever. It's not worth anything other than what somebody thinks it's worth. That's all a piece of cardboard is. It's got a picture of a dude in a, in a uniform on it. It has no real value other than to the collector, which is why I've always thought that cards are not investments. I think they're collectibles. That doesn't mean collectibles can't make money. Collectibles can't be valuable, but I don't look at them as an investment because there's zero intrinsic value within it. On a stock, at least the company has earnings. It owns equipment, it has inventory, whatever that gives it value. It has some intrinsic value to it. Uh, bonds the same way you have, you're entitled to the earnings of the company. You're entitled to interest, all of these things. Those are investments. A house, you have the house itself. It has intrinsic value. The wood, the nails, the copper, the everything else in it has some value. Is it the same value as what the house is? Not necessarily. The intrinsic value is not necessarily equal to the market value. But a piece of cardboard, let me grab one right here. This, who is this? Don Mattingly. This has no, in, it's... A piece of paper, it's worth nothing in and of itself. And so these, but if it has a picture of Mickey Mantle on it, it's now valuable. And so I, I again, I think there's been a reset. And my bold prediction is that those prices are 
at an at a new floor. They've they've kind of made their way up. So that's kind of it. I just again wanted to throw out some thoughts, general thoughts about the hobby. It affects the people in the vintage world, affects people in the modern world, everybody in between. If you're in the hobby, all these things work together. They matter to us. And so I would just leave you with the thought of staying long-term minded. You know, my pause, my intentional pause here of like going, let me just observe, pick up a few things here and there, but mainly just observe, you know, I've only bought, which <laughs> only I, uh, I've bought 47 slabs this, this year in 2021. And we're, you know, getting towards the end of April. That's about 13 a month, which for me is not necessarily a lot. In 2018, for example, I bought 836 PSA cards. So that's 70 a month, two a day, two and a half a day, literally every day for the whole year is how many PSA slabs I bought. I, I paid an average of 21 bucks for those slabs that year. This year, I've only bought, again, 47, 13 a month but I've paid over $66 per slab. This is in from 2018 versus 2021. So there's no question the hobby's growing. There's no question prices are nuts. And that is true, but it's making me want to pause. It's making me want to say, I'll watch. So hopefully you guys enjoyed watching this. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to it. If you're listening to it in your car, on your way home, whatnot, I hope you get home safe. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Pretty quick episode today. I'm glad to be back. I'll kind of, I'm going to be a little more, what's the word? Careful, strategic, I don't know, diligent. I, there's not a right word for it about how the content that I put out is going to be. I'm certainly not going to be as prolific as I had been maybe again someday, but just not right now. I I'm just not feeling it quite frankly, but I'm hoping that my next episode is will be next week. I'm, I'm still wanting to try to do weekly golden age of cardboard episodes. And I'm really close on my 60 top set. And I want to share my experience, what I've learned kind of some <laughs> tricks and do's and don'ts and mistakes that I made and all those things as I've been building this set, which has happened kind of at warp speed. So excited to do that. Hopefully that can be in the next couple of episodes. But in the meantime, thanks everybody for watching. Thanks for listening. Hope you have a great day. Really enjoy the hobby. Like however you're enjoying it, I really hope you do. Uh, this isn't a bash on the hobby. I hope, I hope nobody takes it that way. I love the hobby. There's just, I love my children, but sometimes you got to be real with them. Sometimes you got to say, hey, this is what's going on. This is what I'm observing. This is what I'm seeing out of your behavior, out of what's happening in your life. We don't get to just stand back and say it's all okay. That's not good parenting. And as a good hobbyist, I want to say, hey, some of this stuff is not okay. Or just not even that it's not okay. Just here's what I'm thinking. So take care, guys. Have a great one and keep collecting.